<clears throat> the text today is from Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get yourself out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, You go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killed the prophets and stoned them that are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen does gather her young under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, you shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. And that is the word of God. How can 100 people be led by a single person? Uh, That was the essay question on a three-hour Cambridge University entrance exam in 1981. Now, whether it be 100 or a million people, the question is still valid today. What makes for good leadership? The year was 1793, and on June 13, 1793, a slim 23-year-old artillery lieutenant, stepped on the south of France into a city under siege named Toulon. He was penniless, had very few friends, and was a refugee with a mother and six siblings to support. Six years later, however, this young man would become the first council and dictator of France, Five years after that, he became emperor of the French. And in that position, he soon made France the most powerful nation on the continent. Napoleon came onto the European scene at seemingly the right time. He was ruthless on the battlefield, but he was an avid reader. And Winston Churchill himself once called him, quote, the greatest man of action born in Europe since Julius Caesar, end quote. At the height of his leadership, men were so inspired by him that they would rush into battle and die for him. Wellington once considered Napoleon's mere presence on the battlefield worth the equivalent of 20,000 men. His men were immensely loyal to him, loved him, And he had the power and inspiration along with an outstanding memory. Particularly good with faces and names of his soldiers. And that struck a chord with many of the poor. You see, up until 1789, the people of France were unlikely to rise in life much higher than their fathers and grandfathers. In other words, if your grandfather was an innkeeper then your dad was an innkeeper, and surely, in a matter of time, you too would be an innkeeper. 
Then came Napoleon Bonaparte and introduced meritocracy and unleashed a generation of talent that had previously been held back by a rigid class system. Those who were brave and worked hard were rewarded by Napoleon, sometimes on the spot in the battlefield. Furthermore, he gave the world the Napoleonic Code, which today, till this day, impact the French legal system. And on the surface, it would seem as if Napoleon was the mastermind behind his own destiny. I think we're all tempted to think that. Scores of leadership books have been written because people believe that if they follow simply his principles, they too would be able to lead. But in reality, God was in control. Historians often forget that it was God who made Napoleon come out into the world during a very unique time. Napoleon was 19 years old when the turbulent French Revolution broke out. And this allowed him to rise up the ranks of the French army to become general at only the age of 24. Largely because the aristocrats who used to officer the French army had either fled the country or had been beheaded by guillotine. And we must remember, therefore, God writes history. It is, after all, his story. This would have been impossible in the modern era had Napoleon come onto the scene. And God controls the birth of both believers and unbelievers, both evil and good. Napoleon was born precisely at the right time because it was God's time. And this is not to praise Napoleon. He's done, and this is not a judgment call on whether or not he was a good or bad man. That's not my point this morning. My point this morning was that all of you were born precisely at the right time, and each of you will die at the God-appointed time. The creator of all the world is in full control over our timelines. And when you learn and believe this fundamental truth, you will begin living a life as boldly as Jesus did, as exemplified by today's chapter. In today's scripture passage, the enemies of Christ's earthly ministry approach him with a threat found in verse 31. So take a look at verse 31 and you'll see the threat. In essence, the threat is this. Stop your ministry at once and leave town or Herod will kill you. That's the threat. Now, this threat could have been true or it could have been false. And the reason why I say this is because we know from reading the Bible that the Pharisees were religious leaders of Jesus' day who were immensely jealous of his ministry. Hence, it would be, it, it's ironic, therefore, that towards the end of this passage, Jesus says that a prophet cannot pass away outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the center of religiosity, the temple, the very center of religion, was the very place where many of God's prophets were killed. Hence, it could be that they may 
the Jews, the Pharisees, might have made up Herod's murderous intentions in order to strike fear into Jesus so that he could leave town. On the other hand, perhaps it was true. Maybe King Herod was already trying, was truly trying to kill him. We know from Scripture that the sinful king had already killed Jesus' relative, John the Baptist. So perhaps he was after Jesus as well. Maybe the Pharisees truly were trying to help Jesus escape by notifying him of Herod's evil plan. Of the two options, however, the first one seems likely because of Jesus' response in verse 32. This passage teaches us to be on our guard against crafty and unprincipled people. They often profess to seek our good. They they look as if they care for us, only to be plotting our destruction or seeking to keep us from doing good. By calling Herod a fox, a crafty and deceitful creature, Jesus' response is both a demonstration of immense bravery and a demonstration of proper theology. The first lesson from this morning's passage is this. As Christians, our lives are safe in the hands of God. And wicked people, no matter how crafty or deceitful they are, cannot harm us if God does not permit it. Our lives are in God's hands. Remember, God controls our lives down to the very last minute. Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. In fact, in the Gospel of John, John 7.30, it reads, Then they sought to arrest Jesus, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. What a tremendously powerful, peace-inducing theological truth. No king, no ruler, no circumstance, no disease has the final word. God does. God controls your timeline. Christian, until it is time for you to go, until God declares it's time for you to go, you will not die. And I don't care who it is, is after you, or what disease is persistent in your body. The truth is truth, and the truth is, your last breath is in God's hands, and no one can hurt you, because no one is greater than God. Amen? It was as if Jesus was telling the Pharisees, you think I'm afraid of Herod? Do you think that, that, do you think Herod controls the end of my life? I'm here to tell you Herod cannot lay a finger on me as long as God my father does not permit it. Later, during his trial before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, Jesus reiterates the same theological truth to the powerful leader of Rome. When Pilate asked Jesus the following question, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus responds, John 19, 11, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Can you imagine living life with that sort of confidence? Instead of being scared and running 
Jesus declared to his enemies that he would continue his ministry. He would continue casting out devils. He would continue healing. He would continue preaching. I think instead of scaring Jesus, this emboldened him. It at least gave him an opportunity to make a teaching point to his hearers. By calling the king a fox, a derogatory term, he showed everyone he was not afraid. That there was only one to be afraid of, and that is God. To continue the work that you're doing. Because until God calls you, no one can call you to death. He went throughout life confident in God's timing, and you can as well. Others in history have had faith in God's perfect timing and protection. George Washington is well known for that. During the 1777 Battle of Princeton, Washington rode on his horse as bullets fired from British rifles just 30 yards away and whizzed right around him. When troops worried about their leader getting shot, he simply said, quote, Parade with me, my fine fellows, and we will have them soon, end quote. Washington lived with that sort of boldness because he trusted not only his life to God's hands, but also the timing of his death. And this enabled him to do his work fearlessly. This, of course, brings us to our second lesson this morning. As Christians, we should go fearlessly on doing our duty, especially if we are doing good. God's work is to continue. We should not regard the threats of people. We should not be afraid of bad news from the doctors. God is to be obeyed. And even if obedience should involve us in difficulty and trials, still we should not hesitate to commit our cause to God and keep going forward with God's work. Look to Jesus as your example and keep moving, keep working, keep going forward. And finally, we turn our attentions to verses 33 and 35. The scriptures prophesied that Christ would be killed for the sins of his people. So instead of avoiding the hard path of suffering ahead, Jesus instead chooses to take up his cross and he prepares to go to Jerusalem. Uh, Two weeks ago, I taught you the main passage of that week's The main lesson behind that week's passage, it was the pathway to glory is one of pain. You remember that message? The pathway to glory is one of pain. And this week, we see the resolute Jesus looking towards his end state. And this is vital. Because remember what I said two weeks ago, the end state enables us to persevere. First of all, as I said earlier, it is ironic that he is to die in Jerusalem. It was at the time the location of Israel's temple and as such the center of all religious life. In many ways, Jerusalem was, and I believe still is, the apple of God's eye. And throughout the Old Testament, God sent prophet after prophet to call the city and its inhabitants to repentance. Yet time and time again, Jerusalem kills so many of God's servants. So much so that Jesus remarked, it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. 
The hard-hearted unbelief continues until this day, as many of the world's Jews have yet to receive Jesus as their God and Messiah. And I'm going to be very clear here. The Bible's very clear. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, Jew or not, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in order to go to heaven. You are not saved simply by genetics. You must be born again. But I do believe in a day where many Jews will have the scales removed and in mass come to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That day has not yet come, but it is coming because God is faithful. But until that day, Jews and Gentiles all need Jesus. They need the gospel in order to be saved. We're not saved by pedigree. We're not saved by relation. We're not saved by being in church this morning. We're saved by simple and genuine faith in the gospel. We're saved by believing in this central message. One, that there is a God who is holy, righteous, and just. A God of love, but also a God of justice. That all humans are born into this world naturally as sinners, sin inherited from Adam and Eve, who continued their entire lives sinning. We are not sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. It's by nature who we are. And because of that sin against God, we deserve hell, a place of real fire and torment after death. The Bible warns us of that. And I would be wrong if, as a pastor, I did not warn you of that. But the Bible also said that God so loved the world, he gave his only son Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, and he died on the cross and paid for the sins of those who would believe in him. The punishment that a believer deserved, Jesus took on the cross and he paid for their sins. Finally and ultimately on the cross, Forever, so that if you repent and believe in the resurrected Savior as your Lord and Savior and God, you will have eternal life. But you must believe. You're not a Christian simply because your parents were. You're not a Christian because you're a Jew. You're a Christian because you believe in the gospel that I just proclaimed to you. You believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's why you are a Christian. That's how you know you're going to heaven. There is one pathway to heaven, and that's through that gospel message. But many, during Jesus' day, refused that message. And their time was short. Jesus' warning in verse 35 came true. Jerusalem was absolutely leveled and destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., In fact, the temple still remains in ruins. What's left is a wailing wall if you go to Israel. Your time is limited. Will you turn to Jesus today? Will you believe in the Messiah? Desolate, it says in verse 35, one day many of the Jews, I said, would return to, will return to Christ in faith. It says in verse 35, one day many of them will cry out to Jesus and say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, but that day is not yet. It's not yet come. 
Many of the Jews to this day still follow in their ancestors' footsteps in rejecting the true Christ. And yet, with all the rejection and all the persecution, Jesus still loved Jerusalem. And that love is illustrated by his analogy in verse 34. In verse 34, Jesus compares himself to a mother hen who lovingly gathers and protects her young underneath her wings. This is a picture of love. A picture of love. There was an article in National National Geographic several years ago entitled, Mother Hen Sacrifices Her Life to Protect Chicks During Fire in Yellowstone National Park. And those of you who are mothers or those of you who have had loving mothers, you can definitely resonate with this story. Whether human or animal, nothing is higher than a mother's love. After a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park in the U.S., forest rangers began to trek up a mountain to assess the inferno's damage. And one ranger found a bird literally petrified in ashes, perched like a statue on the ground at the base of a tree. And somewhat disgusted by this strange sight, he knocked over the bird with a stick. And when he struck it, three young chicks scurried out from under the dead mother's wings. Apparently, the loving mother, keenly aware of the impending danger, disaster, gathered her offspring to the base of the tree and had gathered them underneath her wings, instinctively knowing that toxic smoke would rise. She could have gone to safety but refused to abandon her babies. And when the blaze that had arrived and the heat had singed her small body, the mother, like all mothers, remained steadfast and chose to protect her babies. And because she was willing to die, those underneath the cover of her wings could live. And so it is with all of us. Because Jesus was willing to die, those who believe in him could live. Do you believe in this gospel this morning? If you believe in the gospel that I proclaim, then congratulations, you are underneath the wings of God the Father's love. You are under his protection. And like Jesus, you could look at any calamity, at any threat, no matter who or what it comes from, and say, that does not have the final word about my life. God does. So you tell that fox, I'm doing God's work until God calls me home. You can live with confidence in the Father's love. Because his love protects you as a wing of a loving mother's hen. Earlier I opened my sermon with Napoleon. I should close with him as well. I think it's fitting. It's not my place to tell you whether or not Napoleon was a genuine believer or not. But he was right in this particular quote. And if you love history, you'll know that Napoleon did not stay great forever. He was eventually captured twice, right? Exiled to a British island off the coast of Africa, St. Helena. And he was exiled there for six years prior to his death, rather young age of 51. He did a lot in life, 
He died young. And reflecting back on his life, the following words are recorded and attributed to Napoleon. In fact, they say that he said this while exiled. And here's the quote. Alexander Caesar, Alexander Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. End quote. Let us pray. Gracious Father, the question is not really so much about whether or not we would be willing to die for you. The question really is, do we love and believe in the one who died for us? So Jesus, thank you for your love. Cover us by your wings as we believe in you as our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.